Welcome back to another episode of Making Sense of Money. I'm Nikki Jankola Shanks, one of your hosts. Thanks for joining us today. On our last episode, we had a special guest on, Courtney Eccles from Treasurer Michael Frerichs' office, to talk about the retirement crisis in America and the Secure Choice Program, which aims to help combat that problem. So make sure you check it out. And I'm Jake Hamilton, another one of your hosts. Today, we're going to be talking about investing, and we have a special guest on to help us, Seisha Grabenstetter. Seisha works for the University of Illinois Extension Program as a consumer economics educator. We're going to stick to the basics here to give you an overview on some common terms and questions associated with investments. We're not investing experts, but we want to give you the basics here. Seisha and Andrea will also be giving a webinar on investing basics on March 10th, so we encourage you all to sign up for that one as well. And I'm Andrea Pellegrini, the last of your hosts, and I will be co-hosting that webinar that Jake talked about with my good friend and colleague, Sasha Grabenstetter. We both work for the University of Illinois, but she works in University of Illinois Extension, and I work for the University of Illinois System. We do similar things, and we've been working together for a very, very long time, many years, and we have talked about investing before in the past. So I'm excited to do it again this year when there's so much excitement from Reddit. You're a Redditor too, right, Sasha? I am. Yeah. So again, we are not financial advisors, but we want to provide you some general investment knowledge so you at least know what the terms are when you start exploring the world of investing or saving or retirement, as we talked about in the last podcast. And I'd like my friend Sasha to introduce herself and give a little bit of her background. Thank you. So uh, I'm Sasha Grabenstetter. Again, thank you, Jake. I work for the University of Illinois Extension. If you're not familiar with Extension, instead of teaching on campus with students, I teach my community. Currently, the counties that I serve are Will, Grundy, and Kankakee counties in Illinois. I've been with Extension for close to eight years now, and it's crazy for me to say. In my spare time, I love cats and do lots of volunteering at the animal shelter. And both my husband and I have degrees in personal financial planning. So if I don't know an investment answer, I usually ask him. Well, welcome, Stacia. Uh, you'll fit in well here. We're all pet owners. So we're all, this is, a pet, this is a pet friendly podcast. Uh, but let's get started talking about investing. Uh, Nikki, why don't you break down like what that actually means? Just what is, what is investing? Sure. So Usually when people talk about investing, you're talking about the stock market, you're talking about buzzwords that are such as stocks or bonds, which we'll talk a little bit more about. And basically it increases in value over time. Investing allows your money to grow. So that's why it's very, a lot of people associate it with retirement, like we talked about at our our last podcast. So that way what you invest now will be bigger for when you retire. So you'll have more money. But like I said, make sure you check out our previous podcast because we go into a lot of different details about specifically retirement investing opportunities there. Today, we're going to talk more about general investing, not just retirement. So if if you're looking for more information on stuff like 401ks and Roth IRAs, check our last episode. So yeah, so when people really talk about investing, they're talking about their stocks and they're referring to the stock market and what what their investments, their stocks are doing. So Nikki, what type of investments are most common and available to the average consumer? So there are many ways to invest, but usually the most popular are stocks and bonds. So what's a stock? A stock represents an 
piece of ownership in a particular company. So first the company has to go public is what it's called. When companies go public, that means people can purchase stocks and own part of that company. For example, I know the dating app Bumble just recently went public and it was a huge deal for them. So I literally mean if you buy a stock, you own a very, very teeny, tiny, teeny part of the company. So for example, my mom um, is a huge Disney fan, huge, 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 huge. So for her birthday, we bought her shares of stock in Disney because she always wanted to be part owner of Disney. And then depending on how many shares you own, you may even have voting rights to that company. Now, like in my mom's case, she does not have voting rights to Disney. (laughs) She does not own that much stock in Disney. But um, on the other hand, for an example, the treasurer's office in Illinois, they do have investments where they invest some of the state's money. And because of that, they do have shareholder rights in certain stocks that they hold. So an example is that with Wells Fargo, you'll remember a few years back, well, it feels like a few years back, maybe it wasn't that long ago, but you know, COVID time, everything seems a little crazy. Wells Fargo had some different issues come up that we won't get into, but the treasurer's office was actually because they hold some stock in Wells Fargo, they were allowed to speak at the shareholders meeting about what they can do to improve Wells Fargo. So depending on what you can, you know, how much you own, you may actually have things like voting rights and be invited to shareholder meetings. The common average person most likely does not but that's what they do. And then- I'm I'm sorry. What, go ahead. I just have commentary that I want to share. It's amazing that a organization focused on public advocacy used their influence to make a point to a large financial institution that wasn't keeping in mind average consumers. I just think that is amazing. Yeah. So he, they actually ended up, they, I I think now, but like this was, like I said, a few years ago, they actually, at least I know temporarily suspended like 30 billion in investment activity with Wells Fargo until they made some improvements for the average consumer. Wow. So yeah. Now, again, the average consumer is not going to have that many, right? Like stock and shareholder rights, but I just, that was just an example of something that I, I, I worked at the treasurer's office at the time when this was happening. So you could see how, if you do happen to own a lot of stock for shareholders, you can have a voice, some influence. Yeah. Yeah. Stock prices continually change. They never stay the same. So they fluctuate hourly sometimes. So that's kind of general information about stocks. And then a bond is a debt that someone owes you. So what that means, for example, is a government entity may issue a bond for a new infrastructure project. And if you buy that bond, it's almost like a loan. You're giving the money to that government entity. And then that entity must pay you back by the maturity date, which is, you know, some date in the future. Because 
of this, bonds are seen as less risky than stocks, but also they don't have as high of a return. So that's kind of the overview of stocks and bonds. Thank you, Nikki. That was a great breakdown. Yeah, I think everybody probably has heard of things like stocks and bonds, but may not necessarily know exactly what, what those things are. I know like bonds especially can be confusing, but we know what those things are, but let's talk a little bit about the market for those. Nikki, could you give a little bit more explanation about what exactly the stock market is? The stock market is where investors, any type of investors, so from amateur investors, from people on their apps to professional stockbrokers, um, they connect to buy and sell stocks on the stock market. In the United States, the two main stock markets that people talk a lot about are the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. So you'll hear, oh, the NASDAQ is up or the New York Stock Exchange is down, which we'll get into too. Companies list their shares of their stock. So once their company becomes public, they have so many shares that they are willing for people to buy. And then investors buy the shares. And then once they own the shares, they can sell, trade, buy more. And the the stock exchange keeps track of the supply and demand of each stock. So that's how you have some stocks that are worth more than others. They're more in demand. And depending on that supply and demand, it helps set the price of one share of stock. So for example, a bigger company like Disney, I'm sorry, I keep using them as an example just because we just did this for my mom. So like it's at the top of my, my head, right? Like Disney's a big company. They're always in demand. So their, their share price for one stock is much higher than if you're going to buy a share in, let's just say Bumble right now, because it's brand new to the market. So you probably have seen in a lot of movies They have people yelling what's called in the pit of a stock market, you know, like they're all screaming at each other to buy, sell, trade, et cetera. But now it's actually mostly done by computers. So at the Federal Reserve Building in Chicago, you could actually go and see they had like a little pit there where they would constantly have people years ago trading and selling. But now you could see how it's changed people can go visit the Chicago Federal Reserve to see. They even have a money museum, which is very fun. They do. When it is not pandemic times. Exactly. Yeah, don't go now. (laughs) Don't go right now. But you can go in the future. I've taken my grad students to the money museum as a field trip for the Student Money Management Center, and they really enjoyed it. Let's talk about how someone can actually check and monitor the stock market, Seisha. Drop your knowledge on us about how to look at the stock market. That's a great question. I just have to say that when I graduated from my undergrad, one of the things we did my senior year is we actually went to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and we got to help close the bell out. So that was really cool. That was a fun experience. I don't think Andrea knew that. She looks very excited. I'm very excited. So um, I did not know that. Yeah, I know. It was really, it was really fun as a, you know, almost graduating senior from a personal finance degree. So back in the day, usually you had to wait for the stock market information to come out. So whether that was in the newspaper or just at the end of the day, but I mean, honestly, now anyone and their grandma can check the stock market. So as long as you have internet access or a smart device or even an app, you can definitely be able to check the stock market. So whether it's your favorite stock 
that you want to check every day or, you know, every hour on the hour, that's something you want to do. You can do that nowadays. So, um, but a lot of people use their financial planners, you know, to kind of help take care of the stock market for them. So that's a whole different topic for probably another day, but just some pieces of information. What about newspapers, Stacia? Can you check the stock market with newspapers? I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen them in the newspaper, Andrea, but I mean, I would assume that there's some piece of it still there. I know you can, I know you can, they still put it in the newspaper. It's just the amount of people that get newspapers has probably gone down considerably. Like my mom still, like still gets a newspaper every day and you can check the stock market in that, but. I feel I like people want that. They want it real time. Like for most people, most individuals want that information real time. Like they don't want to wait. At least I, I think that they don't want to wait till the end of the day. But I mean, that's a good point, Andrea. Some people still do probably check. Maybe we should survey some people. We could. We could survey some. Station during our webinar, we could do that. <laughs> institution. Yeah, we can do that during our webinar. Yeah, but it might be a little bit biased since they'll be on a webinar. True. <laughs> And it's geared towards young adults. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how many people in that population would opt for the newspaper over their smartphone. That's a good explanation of today, modern age, you can check the stock market in many different ways, but probably the most common way is you can even, if there's a specific stock, you can even just Google it and Google will pop it right up. You won't even have to click a link. So we know a little bit about what stocks and bonds are, what the stock market is, how you can check it. So why do people invest just generally, why do people take their money and put it into these public companies or bonds versus rather just taking their money and putting it under their mattress? We know there's something called the time value of money or the power of compound interest. Could you explain what that is, Seisha, and how it's connected to investing? Of course. So coming from a personal finance degree, this was like pounded into our heads how to actually compute the time value of money. Thankfully, I don't have to do that anymore. So I really do appreciate that. But, you know, the, the thing that I really took from both of my degrees was that the time value of money is like the money that you have presently is more valuable. So you put it away into the stock market for it to start to grow. So the earlier you do it, the better. To me, the time value of money, again, it's, it is a calculation and that's really boring, but really ultimately at the end of the day, you just want to start contributing whatever dollar amount it is that you can on a regular basis. But it's time value of money is really important when we talk about investing, just because we're talking about we're looking for long-term investing versus short-term. You know, we want to have those gains and be able to look at retirement, look at saving for the future, those kind of things. Yeah, and but I think it's people, important. Oh, I was just gonna add, and maybe you were just about to say this, but I think it's important to know too, you know, if you're not investing your money, like taking it and putting it into an investment versus saving your money in cash at home might be more risky, but the reward is that you your money grows versus if you stick it under the mattress, it's not going to grow at all. And it will burn up in a fire. True that. Yeah. It's true as well. With this time value of money, I think it might be important to talk about the rule of 72. Stacia, can you explain the rule of 72? Sure. So the rule of 72 is also a mathematical equation, which I think is kind of funny. But basically it's the... You take 72 divided by an, your interest rate of your returns, and that is the number of years it takes to double your money. So for example, you take 72 divided by our 1% interest rate in savings accounts right now, 
Uh, it'll take 72 years to double your money, which is really sad. Comparing it to, you know, when we talk about putting under the mattress, it's basically the same thing, except we're not really even doubling our money. It just sits there and it sits in the piggy bank or sits in the mattress or burns up. And it's really terrible. But, you know, obviously the higher the interest rate, the faster you'll double your money. So for example, at a 12% interest rate, it would take about six years for you to double your money. So if you had $10,000, you would double it to $20,000, those kind of things. So it's just, again, a simple mathematical way to see how long will it take me at this interest rate to double my money. Thanks, Aisha. The other thing, you know, I think that's kind of scary for a little bit of people for, for people is that investing has a lot of buzzwords that people might have heard, but they don't necessarily know what the terms mean. Um, so we want to try and break those down for people uh, and some of the most popular ones. Let's, let's start with mutual funds. Seisha, could you give us a mutual fund definition? Yeah, sure. So Nikki talked earlier about stocks and bonds. And so a mutual fund, in my opinion, is just a mixture of these two, or it could just be one. So for example, let's say you really are interested in investing and you want to get into a mutual fund, well, you could have a mutual fund with a bunch of different stocks. So it could be from as early as like, like Nikki was talking about Disney. You know, we talked a little bit about GameStop for a second. We talked about like my husband recently decided he wanted to invest in Etsy a while back ago. Um, so basically it's just like a big soup can full of alphabet letters. Yes, that's exactly where I want to go. So if you think of it as like a can of soup, with alphabet letters. That's what mutual funds are, basically. There's a bunch of different letters in your soup can and you're drinking it, whether it's out of a little mug or your, you know, your soup bowl. That's what to me um, a mutual fund is. But basically, you know, it's really just a place to kind of diversify a little bit. Um, I think we'll probably talk about that later. If not, we can right now, but I, you know, that's what a mutual fund is to me that, you know, it's a, it's a place that you can go purchase one of them and there's lots of different stocks or bonds in it or both. Yeah. It or does both. the work yeah. of, it does the work of diversifying your portfolio for you. Right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Instead of you individually going and researching a bunch of different companies that you want to purchase stocks of the mutual fund is just, you can put all your money into that and the mutual fund will split it all up for you. That's a much better explanation, Jake. But Sorry, I no, I was, just, no, I was no, just trying no, you're to. Fine. <laughs> well, I know that people always talk about diversifying your portfolio, but I think that's yeah. But they may not know what a mutual fund is exactly. But it's a it was an investment tool invented by some somebody back in the sixties or seventies or eighties. I don't remember exactly when, but yeah, it it diversifies it for people. Yeah, it, I mean, it just takes the time out of like having to look up every single stock that you want to invest in. If you see that there is a mutual fund that has, you know, a bunch of those in there and that you'd like to invest in, you can go that way instead. This might be a good time to talk about diversification and its role in investment and risk. So, Seisha, do you want to talk a little bit about diversification since we're talking about mutual funds and that's like their primary role is diversification? Yeah. So when I talk about diversification, I usually think about the eggs in the basket comments about how you don't want to put all your money into one specific basket. So for example, like let's say you did get super excited about GameStop and you put all your money in there and let's say it did, the price of the shares did fall. You know, you could lose a, a lot of money that way. So mutual funds are based, like I said, it's kind of like a big can of soup. There's lots of, there's lots of different stocks. There's, there's potentially bonds. There's lots of different companies. 
So they're trying to kind of weigh the risks of the highs and lows in the stock market inside of the mutual fund. So there's mutual funds for all sorts of different kinds of things. There's growth and, or you want a green and mutual fund, like it's really what you want it to be. But I think that diversification really does have to be important when we're talking about risk management and investing. Because again, if you put all your eggs, if you did buy all your, put all your money into one stock and it all went away, you know, that could have some major consequences for you. So, you know, even when you're working with somebody, they're going to be looking for helping you to kind of leverage that risk. So, but that's, I mean, that's, that's what I think of the eggs in the basket. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't buy all the milk in the world. Don't buy all the, don't buy all the Disney stocks. Sorry, Nikki's mom, (laughs) you know, but just think about, you know, which we want to be able to diversify. That's a big word. All the, the risk that's out there. So one way that I have heard about and used to symbolize mutual funds is if you, if you visualize, let's say three different elevators and the first elevator only has one cable. What happens if something happens to that cable on that elevator? It drops. It drops and it crashes. What if you have two cables on the second elevator? Do you want to get in that elevator? Yes, please. Yes. But what if the third elevator has like 40 cables? That might be the best option. If something happens to one of those cables, it's not even going to be that bumpy. So that's another way to think about risk management as it relates to diversification of your stocks and bonds in a mutual fund. That's a great example. I cannot say I made it up. I totally stole it from someone (laughs) else, but I don't remember what It's better than my can of soup example. (laughs) We love all examples here. So they're all great. And we're going to talk a little bit later about how much risk plays into the stock market as well. Okay. I have a question for Nikki now. What is a dividend, Nikki? So a dividend is the money that is actually paid to stockholders. If you buy a stock, then when it makes money, that's what you get. Like the dividend is, is your money. Um, Dividends are not paid like every day. You're not going to get a check every day that you have a stock. So depending on the stock, they're usually paid either quarterly, semi-annually, or annually. So then that's when if you have shares of Apple, then maybe every quarter you'll see in your account that you've made money off of it. And it's there for you. Like it's money that is yours. Because if you're checking the stock market every day, you could see that like, oh, well, this went up. So I did make some money. Yeah, but it may go down tomorrow. So that's why they're paid at certain increments depending on the stock. Thanks, Nikki. And when people talk about shares of a stock, what are they typically referring to? So when we're talking about shares of a stock, we're typically talking about um, an asset. So I think it's important to talk about asset classes just real quickly. Financial professionals kind of when they put a portfolio together for you, they're kind of looking at the different types of asset classes. And so when we're talking about like, what is a share? So you can invest into one share of any kind of stock, depending on what you'd like. So maybe you're really into purchasing Bumble, as Nikki talked about earlier, you know, you might want to purchase that one share. And now you are typically what's called a shareholder. And Nikki talked about that a little bit earlier. 
But, you know, when you're also investing into a bond or, you know, a mutual fund, mutual funds also have shares and that's, you know, that piece of that asset class. So just a little bit more to add to it. Is there like a specific definition of asset class? Yeah. So when we talk about Yes, there is a definition, Andrea, Um, but asset classes are created, so they're kind of treated the same way under tax law. So for example, like when we talk about asset classes, stocks are typically, stocks and bonds are, stock bonds and mutual funds are one asset class. When we're talking about another asset class, it might be like investment real estate or not golden, but like futures are a different one and then hedge funds are different. So like there's just different asset classes to kind of help diversify that risk a little more. Thank you, Seisha. We may need to do a podcast just on asset classes because I think there's so many. So many. I don't understand them. It would just be us grilling Seisha, I think, or whoever else we bring on. Yeah. So you just mentioned hedge funds. Can you explain what hedge funds are and the role of maybe hedge fund managers? Sure. I'll do my best here. (laughs) Um, So head funds are basically, they're actively managed by somebody. So they're, somebody is in charge of actively looking at these hedge funds, but hedge funds are an alternative investment that uses pooled funds that employ different strategies to get different returns. I have always, I'll be honest, shied away from hedge funds when we're talking about investing, just because sometimes they go over a little bit over my head or over the hedge of my head, but there has been a large growth in them and people are really interested in them because of the different types of returns that they can give you. But that's kind of in a short, my hedge fund example. And well, I just, and I think it, it's probably also important to say like most people don't have hedge funds, right? Like correct. hedge funds are, are really more for your people who have more money that they may be investing. This is not your necessarily typical consumer. It's more people who have more money that they, they can invest in, in the stock market. Um, and then your head fund managers manage it for them. It, it's not something that probably none of us here on this podcast are gonna be able to afford to be part of a hedge fund, right? Like it, it's more for, for those higher risk, higher reward, more money into the stock market that, than your average person. We're not talking about, you know, retirement accounts with hedge funds. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think you touched on something that we're going to talk about in a future podcast, but is definitely popular right now with the hedge funds and some of the other terms associated with that, with, with the risk. And we want to talk about one term and specifically that maybe people have heard surrounding the GameStop stock issue. The term short sell, short sell is definitely popular right now. And we are going to do uh, another podcast where we actually dive more into this term specifically and what happened specifically with GameStop stock uh, with our director of banking, Chase Raywinkle. But just to make sure we give our listeners a basic understanding of that. What is it, what does it mean to short sell a stock? Sure. So I will give a a very basic definition with an example and Chase will love to go into more detail. (laughs) Um, But so basically a short seller borrows shares of, of a stock and then they sell it. They sell it because 
the short seller thinks, or they're basically putting a bet, like that that stock price will fall and it's going to lose value. So I'm going to borrow the share of stock that I'm going to turn around and sell it because I think it's not going to be worth as much. And then when it does lose value, the seller buys it back at the lower sale price, returns the stock to where they borrowed it, and they make a profit. So let me give you an example. So let's say a short seller borrows 10 shares of dog stock. Clearly this is made up, right? Dog stock, but you know, we're big pet people here. <laughs> All right, so, so the short seller borrows these 10 shares of dog stock. Then the short seller sells all the shares of stock for $500. Then that price of that dog stock falls and the short seller buys back all 10 shares, but only for $400. Then the, it re, the short seller returns the 10 shares and he or she keeps $100 in profit. People who study the stock market are going to say, okay, I'm, I'm basically betting that, that this stock is going to drop. What happens when that the, the stock doesn't drop is what we'll get into on the next episode. Yeah, we can talk more about that type of scenario when the stock doesn't actually drop. It'd be like the scenario with dog stock, but since everybody loves dogs, there's no real reason to think the stock would ever drop. So that'd be a bad bet to, to bet against dog stock dropping. That is an excellent point. Everybody loves dogs the value in dog stock will never go down. It's a bad bet. Let's talk about the Dow. So people usually hear about the Dow or in the news, it might be referenced. The, the Dow is up or the Dow is down. But what does that actually mean, Nikki? So the Dow is short for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Fancy name. But the Dow, when you hear it on the news, they'll say, oh, the Dow is up, the Dow is down. It makes you think that like the whole stock market and whatever, but it actually is only referring to 30 of the most traded stocks on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. So out of all the companies that are out there on the exchange, it's only referring to these 30 companies that are being watched. So what are examples? Some examples of these companies are Home Depot, Disney, Apple, Boeing, McDonald's, Johnson & Johnson. So your bigger name companies, 30 of them together make up the Dow. And then those 30 companies is oftentimes what is used to, to kind of gauge the stock market. Gotcha. Thank you, Nikki. And you touched, you mentioned it, but what exactly does it mean when the stock market itself goes up or goes down? Like how do, how do we measure that and how is it gauged? Yeah, so that it's actually tied directly to the Dow. It actually, if the Dow is up, that means the stock market is up, but really it just means those 30 companies are doing well and their stock prices are rising. So the stock market is considered on the rise. If the Dow, those 30 companies, if they're stock prices are dropping, then they consider that the stock market as a whole is going down. But it's also important to note that the stock market fluctuates all the time. So it can be up, it can be down several times in the same day, depending what is happening in the world with a particular company. Like you could check the stock of, you could check the Dow at 9 a.m. and it, everything 
looks great and it's up. And then if you check it again at closing time, you're like, oh, wait, no. And then now they're down. Everything fluctuates. So there's a lot of symbolism that is already in this podcast, but we're going to pull in some more symbolism because it relates to the stock market. The animals, the bull and a bear are often associated with the stock market. And there's even the sculpture of the bull on Wall Street. And then there was the additional sculpture of the girl staring down the bull added. I think it was in like 2011. I just looked it up not too long ago before this podcast, but didn't didn't verify. But um, that was added later. But those are symbols. And even names of restaurants relate to the symbolism for the stock market. But why do we use these symbols to refer to the stock market, Nikki? So the stock market is oftentimes referred to as either a bull or a bear market. The bear market is when a stock market experiences a prolonged decline. So that usually means stocks have to fall 20% or more and over a period of time, at least a few weeks. Because again, as we just talked about, the stock market every day can fluctuate, right? Like if it goes down for one day or two days, that doesn't make it a bear market. What makes it a bear market is if it's weeks of steady decline in the stock market. It could even last years. Examples, the Great Depression and the Great Recession in 2008 too. Those are both examples of bear markets where the stock market dropped and continually dropped and didn't come back at all for weeks and weeks and weeks. So then a bull market is the exact opposite. That's when it starts to rise at least 20% after the decline. Again, it needs to be over a period of time. A one-day rally doesn't make it, hey, we're out of this bear market, everything's great again. It needs to be a steady increase of stock prices rising. An example of a bull market would actually be um, right after World War II. When World War II ended, there was a big boom. That was an example of a bull market. So why bull and bear? So there's a lot of different theories out there, but the one that that seems to be the most agreed upon is that it became that way because it's related to how a bull and a bear actually attack their opponents. A bull attacks by moving their horns up, so the price goes up, and then a bear attacks by swiping their claws down, and so the prices drop. Thank you, Nikki. That was an excellent explanation. So now we've gone over a bunch of key terms. Let's talk specifically about why someone invests. And and Seisha, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but why would people take their hard-earned money and put it into the stock market? What does that do for them? Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about, about putting money under the mattress and how really helpful that was. Our goal to invest is to, one, beat inflation because, you know, we talk about how much does milk cost even five years ago versus today. But we also have to think about long-term investing and thinking about having that money grow. Again, the time value of money, thinking about like making money grow. And that piece of investing is related to why we invest. We want to invest so we can watch our money grow and continue for it to compound over time and just blossom for that when we we are in retirement we're not like mad at ourselves later on in life because we really only have ourselves to blame 
if we're not um, investing for our future. So I think that's why most people think that they invest, but most of the time people invest because they're like, ooh, I see somebody making a lot of money off of X, Y, or Z stock, and I should do it too. So then they get involved and then they learn that it's a much bigger process. It sounds like also you're kind of describing like active investors. Correct. And like I personally identify more as a passive investor. I know it's important. I think it's also important since we're in a pandemic and economic disparity is really prevalent for a lot of people across the world, but specifically in the United States, that just because you don't have the means to invest right now or to save right now doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about when you can or when you do have the means to do it, how it can help you in the future. And that we don't want to just glaze over the fact that people are really struggling right now. And while we're talking about investing, I just wanted to make sure that we, <laughs> we talked about that. And now let's talk a little bit about how sometimes people view the stock market as risky and how risk might play into your investment planning or purchases or decisions. Okay, so I think this is two layered, right? There's two different types of risk kind of that we're talking about here. The first is like your own individual risk, right? Because there are some people like we've mentioned, who really like to put their money under the mattress and they are not risky people. There are people who don't believe in the stock market or they won't put their money there. I just had a conversation with a mom friend that she put some money into a 529 plan and then watched the money disappear and she was really upset. So then she pulled her money out. So those people are people who I think are risk adverse. There's also people who love to jump out of airplanes and who really enjoy doing risky things like bungee jump or ride in fast cars. Like that's a different type of person who is looking at risk. So like in like the first layer there is like your individual risk. But when we talk about risk and someone's investing, you know, like not only you have to take in your individual risk, but like how much risk are you willing to take with your investment? So stocks are typically considered more risky because, because anything could happen to them. You could get tomorrow if somebody could say that, McDonald's was doing something inappropriate and everyone gets out of McDonald's, you know, that, that just happens. Those are those kind of things. Whereas bonds are considered less risky because there's, they're backed typically, you know, by the federal government, or when we talk about like, if it's a state or local bond, like there's something that's behind them. So that's why we usually talk, when we're talking about investment risk, you know, like mutual funds that we say like they're less risky because they're more diversified, like we talked about earlier. So I think, again, there's two levels there, but it's a good thing to talk about. I have a clarifying question. I know that the approach, the general approach to making investing decisions has kind of shifted over time with financial professionals. And you know a lot more financial professionals than I do, or I mean, you live with one. I live with one, but that's about <laughs> it. You're married to one. Um, so I know that risk tolerance used to be a major factor in making decisions for investing, whereas some people now say you should look more at target date type of investment vehicles. What do you think are the pros and cons to each of those? I think it really depends on like how you're financial professional that you're working with is like what their investment strategy is. 
right. I don't know if there's necessarily a pro or con to both right now. Cause like I probably, my husband probably has people that he like really focuses on their risk tolerance for like for other people, he looks at those target date funds. So when we're talking about target date funds, like they mature at a certain age. Is that right? When we're talking about target date funds. Yeah. So for example, like in my child's education 529 plan, he's in a target date fund because he's little bitty and he has a long time to grow till Hopefully he goes to college or some kind of trade school. But I think you have to talk to, to me, it's there. It's who is in putting your plan together is probably a more important question than like the pros and cons of each Andrea to me. Like we're looking at like, how does that investment strategy work for the person who's putting it together for me? Because, or, or if you're doing it yourself, you know, that's something you have to decide. But for me, that's something that I would have my financial planning husband do. <laughs> for us. So people view the stock market as risky, but there are different types of like investment vehicles for people. Like there's the difference between like passive investors, like Andrea said, where they put their money in a mutual fund or an index fund. And those are generally considered less risky versus people who are day traders and Robinhood and they try to chase trends. Or even we could talk about target date funds where if you have a target date 45 year retirement fund, you know, the first 30 years of that are going to target more risky stocks that typically give a greater return. But as you get closer to the target date, it winds down your risk and invest in more safe investments like bonds or, or conservative or conservative. Yeah. Or companies that are well-established and don't fluctuate much. And I think too, it's important to note that risk, like whether you're risk averse or you're a skydiver, whatever you may be, like there's ways to invest in the stock market based off your your level of risk you feel comfortable with. Like if yeah, you are was... risk adverse, there's like like Jake was just saying, there's mutual funds, there's passive investing where you you could have somebody do all of that stuff kind of for you. My husband and I recently met with a financial planner and it was very much like they give you a risk tolerance kind of quiz and then you they really got into like what we wanted, how much risk we're willing to take, right? That on. So risk definitely plays a part with your investments and where you're going, but you can definitely find a level to kind of invest in the stock market in that that fits with your with what you're comfortable with and your philosophy. And your values. Yeah. Go ahead, Stacia. I was just gonna piggyback off of like, you know, if you are a totally risk adverse person, and you're working with somebody, whether it's your app or your financial planner or whoever it is, like, they're going to talk to you about like, well, you know, about those things we talked about, the time value of money and the rule 72, like if you have a 1% interest rate, it's going to take you 72 years to double your money. So you have to decide like, okay, maybe I am risk adverse, but I feel more comfortable in a mutual fund that does this instead of, you know, a high risk stock. So it just has to have a, it's a conversation. I think. I just wanted to bring up those factors because when you are choosing or if you are choosing a financial planner or a robo advisor, you need to consider what fits best with your investment philosophy, what strategies that they're willing to put into place that fits with what your needs and wants and values are. That was my goal. I think a lot of people view the stock market as inherently risky because they think of like individual stocks go up and down and that is inherently, it's almost like gambling. You're 
it's almost like you're at a casino. I think people have this view of the stock market as a casino, but there are specific types of investment options out there for people that don't carry that kind of risk. Risk is its own thing. It's its own, because there's so many ways to look at it from an individual perspective, from a descriptor of the stock market, from a descriptor of individual stocks or bonds, from even like, what is the risk of keeping cash under your mattress? That is a risk. Yeah, you're going to lose money. The value of your money will decrease if you if you don't do anything with it because inflation will make it less valuable. And it will completely go away if your house burns down. Or tornado. Or tornado. Or fire. Or fire. Or all the things. Or squirrels. Water. Steal water. It. Yeah, there's just, just a lot. There's a lot to consider with risk. I think what's most important for the listeners to know is that like when you talk about investing for the future, it's not all one type of risk. There's, you, you know, when you plan with a financial planner or you make those decisions yourself, like there's very many options that are afforded to you that can either mitigate risk or increase risk based on your, your own risk tolerance. But yeah, so like we said, there's just a lot going on with risk, but, and we've talked about how stock prices can rise and fall multiple times in a day. You know, you can watch a ticker and it'll, you know, look like a heartbeat monitor. It'll go up and down, up and down. So we know the market can be up and down, but what type of things, Nikki, affect the stock market? Like what causes the market to go up and down? Yes. And, and one thing I'll add about the stock market in general and risk is that it does fluctuate every day, right? But the reason why people do invest and a lot of people feel safe investing is because the general trend over a long period of time goes up. So like you may, it may dip for little bit, but then it goes up. So like Sasha was talking about her 529 college plan, right? Like, yes, maybe in a day you lose some money in it, but then 15 years of investing in your 529 college plan over that time, generally it goes up. So that's something to keep in mind too. But what actually causes the stock market to go up and down so much, there are a variety of factors. So I'm just going to name a few. Unemployment rates definitely can affect the stock market. Inflation, supply and demand, what in a given time period is, is popular versus what's being needed now as opposed to maybe three years from now. Natural disasters. I mean, we're recording this today. There's, you know, in Texas, there are millions of people without power right now. That And there's a natural disaster, a disaster proclamation declared. Like that could have an effect on certain stocks in the stock market. Because clearly, if they're in Texas right now, you know, they're dealing with other other things. Interest rates can have an effect on the stock market. And there's also called the market sentiment, which is kind of like, it, it, it's a gray area because it refers to how people feel about the stock market and how investors are feeling. So for example, they may be like, oh, I'm not real sure about this new policy that just came out. So you'll you'll hear on the news like investors are hesitant or worried. So like maybe they didn't the stock market went down a little bit. Like they're waiting to see how certain things play out. So that's a that's a gray area. Other things that affect it, world events, elections always have a big fluctuate on the market, protests, 
and we're talking worldwide, right? Because these companies are worldwide. Government fiscal policy can also play into the stock market, you know, different regulations or deregulations and how investors feel about that. And then in this past year, COVID obviously had a, a major role to play in the stock market as well. So you could see it, it is many factors that can go in to, to what makes the stock market up or down on, on a given day. So as, as Nikki's kind of described, there are a lot of impact factors and metrics that are related to the stock market. And sometimes they can have a reciprocal relationship. Based on kind of what research you've done, Nikki, would you say it's safe to assume that this, if the stock market is up, that the economy is going well? Uh, in short, no, not at all. <laughs> So it's very important to remember that the stock market is not the economy. Just because the stock market is doing well does not mean the economy is. So this is a discussion that economists around the world have, but I'm just going to talk about some of it in broad strokes. First reason why um, the stock market is not the economy is many workers aren't part of the stock market. (laughs) They don't invest. So you're leaving out we're talking about the economy as a whole, you're leaving out all these people who don't have stocks in the stock market. You're also leaving out thousands of companies that are not public when you're talking about the stock market. So yeah, Amazon is clearly public and being traded, but your mom and pop store down the street, your small businesses are not. So the stock market cannot tell you how those businesses are doing. There's also the supply and demand aspect, again, with like we were just talking about with small businesses, you're only tracking supply and demand of those certain companies. So you're not really getting a whole picture of the full economy, right? Like, yes, those certain companies may be in supply and demand, but your small business down the street is not experiencing demand. So they're suffering while a bigger company maybe accelerating. So to, to put this into to terms, actually recent terms, if let's look at what's happening with COVID-19. Okay. Unemployment rate is at a record high. Businesses have had to close their doors due to public health needs. Some have had to, to close doors permanently. Lines at food pantries are super long. People are receiving unemployment, like I said, at higher rates. But throughout this entire year, the stock market has actually been doing good. People have made money in the stock market throughout 2020. Why? Because certain companies that are part of the Dow are skyrocketing. Amazon, for example, as people stayed home, right? And they didn't want to go shopping or they couldn't go shopping depending on the restrictions in their area. They are ordering more from Amazon to have things delivered. Apple, the same way. People are sent home from work. So, you know, they're setting up new offices and maybe buying new laptops. So their stock prices are rising. Home Depot, I know my parents just went through actually a home renovation and they were talking to some of the guys there. They ordered new furniture and things like that. And they were like, oh yeah, all that sector is kind of booming right now because people are home and they're sitting there and they're like, oh, I want to change this about my house, you know, because they're home more than they they used to be. So those companies, 
those large companies that are part of the Dow are making money right now. So the stock market rose, but the economy we know is not doing well because millions of people have lost their jobs and the economic outlook right now is bleak. And this is bringing about, you know, the talks about economic relief packages, stimulus checks, the PPP programs, et cetera. So I think COVID-19 is a really good example and very recent example about how you can see how the stock market is very different than the actual economy. Amen, Nikki. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the stock market measures a very, I guess I'd say a small slice of the economy. You know, it encompasses very large companies, but those companies don't make up the majority of businesses in the world or the U.S. So the stock market itself doesn't speak for the entire economy. But it's good to know, now that we know everything about the stock market and all these terms and investing, Seisha, how can one actually start investing? Like if they listen to this podcast and they say, hey, I've got $1,000 sitting under my mattress and I think it's not a good idea to leave it there anymore. How can they start to invest that money? Well, if you have it in your mattress, you should go put it in your bank account first. So let's start there. (laughs) But I mean... It's really up to you, like how you would like to, you know, start investing yourself because there's tons of different ways. And we talk about like, how do you start investing? So you can do it yourself. You can download an app or find a website that you really have followed or enjoyed, and you can start investing that way. So you can do it yourself. Of course, there's lots of apps you know, we wouldn't recommend or endorse any kind of apps, but you know, there's a bunch out there um, that you can Google, Google best apps to invest for 2021. And it will help you figure out, you know, what's the best for you. I think I'm a little biased. And I think that, you know, a financial advisor or a planner is a good idea. You know, again, I'm married to one. So again, that's where that bias comes in. I also have lots and lots of friends who are financial planners, and they can really help you kind of like look at what your long-term goals are and help you kind of really focus on what kind of investing you'd like to have. So I think that that's another place, but if you do invest with a financial advisor, you know, make sure you ask, how will I be paying you? Is it an hourly rate? Is it a percentage off of the amount of assets that you manage? Is it a combination of both? Um, I think that's important. And of course, you can always be, you know, find a stockbroker. They're not going to give you any financial advice. They just want your money (laughs) and they just concentrate on investments. So there's a fee for their services just to, you know, mention that. But I do think it is important to think about all the different ways you can invest and figure out which, because it can be overwhelming to start, like just start, even if it's a little bit, even if it's, um, you know, just a small amount. So one method that I'd like to add on to Seisha's list of options for starting investing might be to use an app that does roundup investing. You just connect it to your your cards and then it'll round up to the nearest dollar and you take that little bit of savings and invest it. So there's a lot of apps out there that'll do it for you. It'll automate some of that. You can look at your money grow over time with very minimal investing experience or initial capital. Because sometimes when you work with a financial planner or a broker, they want you to have so much down and that's not feasible for everyone. But with a robo-advisor or with some of the 
the minimum investing financial tools, investing vehicles, you might be able to get started with very little on a monthly basis. And I know we even talked about in the retirement podcast a little bit about IRAs. If you are employed, the IRA minimums can be very small to get started with investing for retirement specifically. So just think about there are a lot of different tools. And we even have a recorded webinar on the Student Money Management Center YouTube page about how to choose a financial professional if you want to go that route and what the differences are between brokers and financial planners and where there may be overlap, how people are paid for their services so that you know what types of questions to ask if you're choosing a financial professional to help you with your investment options. So we are clearly not financial advisors, but Sasha, can you speak at all about the amount that an individual invests? Is there a minimum? Should people invest or save? I think that when we're talking about investing or saving, like they're really in, in the general broad scheme of things, like, yes, they are two different things, but they're also kind of like similar things because we're invest, we're saving money to invest it for the future. But is there a minimum? There are small minimums for certain types of investing. Like Andrea just talked about for your IRA, you can get into a mutual fund for as little as I think, I think it's 25 to $50 a month to start investing with. So I think that's where this question originally came from. And like when we're talking about it is that, you know, there is, there are some minimums when we talk about, you know, how much do I need to invest monthly on a basis when we're, whether we're working with somebody or not, that there are minimums to, you know, how much money I can put in. But we obviously would like you to put as much, as much or as little as you'd like away. Yeah, that's a good explanation. You know, investing or saving is a, is a personal choice. And, you know, that's something each individual person is going to have to decide for themselves, but there's really no minimum to it. You can start with as little as you need to, or as much as, as, as much as you're able to. But Seisha, do you have uh, any last thoughts on investing to share? Anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? I guess if I had to leave any thoughts. So I know you guys have a re- retirement podcast that you've already talked about, but I think that it's important to not only invest in your own future, like I think some of this is talking about investing in just a general sense, right? But again, I think some of it comes down to like investing for your retirement is really important. So if you aren't matching with your employer, whether that's your 401k, you know, I think that's important to start doing. So just start, start small, put it away, get it going. That would be my one thought, but the other thought is, oh, if you feel like your financial planner or person that is helping you invest is doing something wrong, you know, there are ways to um, kind of call them out in real life and let them know, like, you know, whether they're with the certified financial planner, they're not doing their fiduciary job. There's ways to kind of get those scammers, those people and tattle on them. Sorry, my brain's like, I don't know what the word is. It's right there on the tip of my report. tongue. Yeah, yeah report, them. report them. Yeah, yes. it was like, it's right there. Sorry, pregnancy brain is real people and <laughs> really struggling. I don't know about Nikki, but I'm really struggling. So, I think what you're getting at is that consumers can report businesses or financial planners to a government entity like uh, IDFPR, we handle consumer complaints. Uh, the Illinois Attorney General's Office also handles consumer complaints. 
So does the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, on the federal level. Um, there's lots of resources out there if people feel that they're being wronged financially or by the people that are taking care of their money for them. So don't hesitate to look into those if you feel like something's been wrong or somebody, somebody is doing you wrong. There are entities out there that regulate those types of financial planners and can take care of that. But thank you for joining us today, Sasha. We know that investing is a complicated topic. As we've mentioned multiple times before, we're, we're definitely not financial advisors, but we hope we were able to give the listeners an overview so that they feel empowered to go out and start investing themselves. We encourage the listeners to take some time to think about it, if investments can play in their role, a role in, in their life right now and how they maybe could. Uh, maybe it's time for saving for retirement or college or growing an emergency fund. There's, there's lots of different things to think about. But we do encourage you to research it and think about if there is a role for investing in your life. Yes, thank you so much, Seisha. I'm so glad that you could join our podcast. Do you want to talk a little bit about your own podcast? Yes. So if you are interested and you've enjoyed listening to my voice, we do have a podcast, my colleagues and I at University of Illinois Extension. It's called Family Financial Feuds. And we talk a lot about all sorts of different financial topics. We focus more on the research that comes out from other financial educators and researchers out there. And then we also talk about the feuds that money can make within our family. Hence, it's called Family Financial Feuds. So check it out. This month, we did a podcast on should you save for your child's retire or your child's education or for your own retirement. So that one actually was like a legit feud, even between the three of us. I'm really looking forward to that one coming out. As someone who has listened to Family Financial Feuds, I did a binge right before our winter break. It is very fun to listen to the different perspectives from Seisha and Kathy and Kamaya. So I encourage you to check out Family Financial Feuds, which I believe is also on Apple Podcasts. It is. And SoundCloud. So if you are also looking for more information on investing, I'd like to encourage you to join Seisha and I for our webinar, Investing Basics, on March 10th of this spring. There you'll be able to ask questions, see graphs, and plus hang out with Seisha and I. So check the show notes for the sign-up form. Once again, thank you, Seisha, and I encourage everybody to, to go to the webinar. I think seeing some of this stuff um, visually like the time value of money and, and, and how your money can grow and things like that uh, makes it easier to understand. But on our next episode, Jake and I's boss, director of Banking Chase Brainwinkle, will talk about the recent news story that captivated so many, the rise of the GameStop stock and the response to it. And also as an FYI to our listeners, this is gonna be my last podcast for a little bit. I will be going on maternity leave but no worries, Andrea and Jake will be, still be here with new episodes of Making Sense of Money, and I will rejoin them again when I'm back. But for the near future, I'll be a listener just like you guys. So make sure to share Making Sense of Money with your family and friends, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Until next time, thanks guys. Thanks guys.